Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gurr and Tom Keene on a difficult Monday morning across America, of course, last night, about 10 p.m. Las Vegas time, 1 a.m., I believe that is, David, Wall Street time, uh, a horrific shooting in Las Vegas. With us now, uh, for a generous uh, and good half hour, is Robert Profusek of Jones Day. And uh, Bob, the, the normal discussion with you would be M&A and finance, and I guess we can do that here in a bit or in our next Section Jones Day is well in excess of 2,000 lawyers worldwide, truly worldwide. And one of your jewels is Peter Canfield of Atlanta. I should point out that Mr. Canfield has represented Bloomberg LP on various matters, and he is a leader in thinking about gun safety. Um, it's not something, Bob, I'm assuming you're up to speed on a minutia of us, but where does the legal business fit into this only in America debate that we have about guns. Just frame for us where lawyers fit in to the debate that we're going to once again have over the next number of days. Well, I think they they basically line up just where their politics line up. Um, I don't understand personally why this is a political issue, but it's been been that for, gosh, for decades and yeah. can, can expe- be expected to continue. There was a... Uh, a, uh, an effort to uh, get the gun control through litigation a, f- a few years ago. It actually kind of on the tobacco model of taking on the gun manufacturers in the ground. They were producing an inherently dangerous product that didn't really go anywhere in the courts. Um, so it, it's not something that's going to be uh, going to be dealt with in litigation. It'll be the political issue. I hate to be negative about it, but obviously the the lobbying has has kept things from happening very much, particularly yeah. on a federal level. I mean, the, the the cynic of it all is 26 dead in Connecticut, which it clearly has a local tinge to our New York audience. Maybe, you know, we shouldn't focus on that versus Danville, California. But now this horrific event in uh, Las Vegas. From where you sit, what is the power of those that want to protect firearms is the romance they talk about. That those weren't firearms in that video this morning uh, that we saw of people dying in Las Vegas. That was warfare. Well, sometimes, you know, incidents like that can change people's perspectives. I mean, you listened to that continuing, the automatic weapon continuing to discharge. You thought, is this a gun or is this a weapon? And maybe if there people start drawing that distinction, uh, there's a possibility of, of taking a different perspective. I suspect this may be something be, uh, more likely to be dealt with state by state than on a federal level. There's just yeah. too much paralysis in Washington over the most basic of issues. And, you know, the pro, the anti-gun lobby doesn't have much, doesn't have much lobbying. Yeah. The NRA and other people can lobby. And, and, and I would say, David, and I don't say this with any expertise or authority, the video and audio attached to it, that we ran on Bloomberg Television here this morning, I was stunned because I had not seen it until we went to air. And I was just thunderstruck by the immediacy of the video that America wakes up to this morning. 
Yeah, I, I think Bob's right. I think people are going to be reckoning with that today and uh, throughout the week and, and beyond. And uh, certainly something that has changed is the availability of audio and video of incidents uh, like these. It certainly changes, I think, how one processes or begins to process what happened here. Bob, let me pivot, uh, if I could, and, and, and go to something more mundane, as, as uh, Tom said at the top. That is uh, sort of what we, we focus on here day in and day out in light of, of, of what we've been following overnight. Uh, just get us up to speed on sort of what the, this environment looks like for deal making. There's a lot of conversation here about what the Fed is going to look like, what's going to happen to interest rates. So we continue to, to follow that on Bloomberg surveillance, uh, of course. How is that? How is the, the conversation about interest rates shaping a company's appetites for, for deal making here in 2017? Well, equity capital is getting very expensive, but debt, debt capital is basically free. I mean, for a uh, high, uh, high end credit, it's, it's effectively when you think of the amount of debt that'll be uh, taken down for the uh, Time Warner deal, for example, it's it's almost like going to a, the ATM for AT and T to do that deal. So it's pretty extraordinary, and that there is going to be some pressure when there is a perspective that those rates will actually change, normalize. I'm not sure I know what normal means for the debt markets anymore, <clears throat> but get get higher up. That's going to put some pressure. The biggest issue, though, is. I, we talked about it earlier on the, on TV, is is getting rid of the uncertainty about taxation. It isn't that that there be repatriation, although that would be stimulative, or that there will be lower rates, that would be stimulative as well, is that some of the other stuff is off the table. Mm. That's important because you know, you're trying to value something and you don't know, it's hard to do it with that tax I, uncertainty. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I am. It's Monday interruption day here. David, I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you have a number of yields where the game changes? Do you have in your head? I mean, you're not a, a numbers yield guy. You're a legal guy. So I'm going to ask you the question because probably you're the only one that knows. Do you have a number where the rules change for M&A? Is it a 3% yield? Is it? Do you have a number in your head? I think when the 10-year starts, when people start getting convinced the 10-year will actually start approaching three, you're going to see a stampede of transactions. See, we would never get that answer, David, from a financial guy. Very true. Their general counsel, a lawyer like Robert Profusik, don't say that on air. Or Profusik can say it. Given what we're seeing with that, why why have we seen some sluggishness or slowness to to the deals marketplace at, at this point? Do you, do you think it's gonna we're gonna see an uptick here soon? Well, I I do think that that well, there's a lot of things, of yeah. course. I mean, and there's never one answer to anything. But to me, the overriding issue has been the uncertainty of the of everything going on in Washington, include and that and some of that will continue. Just the you know, oh my gosh, can you believe this reaction that we seem to have on whether it's the NFL or Puerto Rico or you name it. I mean, that, that has an effect. But the fundamentals, tax policy is an important issue. Um, and, you know, earlier in the year, and this was less Trump than, and more Kevin Brady, uh, the uh, head of the House Ways and Means Committee, it was like, we're going to do these grand things. We're going to go to a territorial system. We're going to do... Order-adjusted tax. Yeah, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. People are saying, well, how do I value something? How do you value a, even a retailer, which there's got to be a lot of M&A in that space. There's no question about it. But if you import most of your stuff and there be the BAT, what's it worth? I don't know. I mean, so it it inhibited things. Getting rid of that uncertainty isn't itself going to uh, open the floodgate, but it'll be an important point, of, a very important part of it. Yeah, I, I talked with Stefano Piscina of Walgreens Boots Alliance just a, a few weeks ago after his deal for Rite Aid went through, and I asked him what he thought about the environment in Washington, and 
And he said there is a lot of uncertainty, and he's surprised by how long uh, his particular process took. Are things taking longer? I imagine there's a lot of observation of how these regulators are working, some of which have fewer commissioners than, than, than a full panoply of them, of course. But uh, is it taking longer than it did in the past? Well, there, it's, it's, you kind of break into two pieces. Deals that started in the old administration, those are taking even longer because of there have been a lot of departures. Um, uh, the thing, you know, the leadership changes, but the staff positions don't change. So their attitudes about very aggressive uh, antitrust enforcement, F FCC, you name it, regulatory enforcement, that's that's uh, uh, that's continuing. And in fact, even dragging things out. We have a deal that was announced fourth quarter last year that we thought would be long be, be closed. Looks like a 2018 deal. Same people who would have reviewed this transaction under President Obama, they've got it. So they have those attitudes. Uh, antitrust will get easier. On the other hand, there's some aspects of the new administration where deals are tougher. I mean, the amount of Chinese m and in, in the United States is going to be not virtually nothing, I think. Um, in okay. fact, Chinese companies yeah. have sw switched almost like VC, uh, venture capital investment mm -hmm. rather than M&A. Bob Profusik is with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the global chair of M&A at Jones Day, the law firm at Jones Day. And before break, Bob, we were talking about um, the role of China uh, in the deals space. And, uh, you know, I've, I've noted the degree to which Chinese regulators, Chinese government officials are cracking down on capital outflows. When when you look at the, the diminished role of China uh, in the deal space, is it, is it – because of a declining U.S. appetite that you see CFIUS perhaps expressing some uh, reluctance to approve these deals, or is it more attributable to uh, what the Chinese government is doing, that is uh, letting less Chinese money out into the global marketplace? Well, it's really both. Um, 2016 was an incredible year for Chinese investment in North America. I've forgotten the exact number, but I think it was in the order of $285 billion. Uh, that's a lot from uh, way more than there's, there'd ever, ever been before. Yes, the, uh, it's coming from both ends. The Chinese government is cracking down. But when you talk to Chinese clients, we have, we have over 100 lawyers in China. And um, we talk to these uh, clients. What they're, really, they're, they're concerned less about currency uh, issues and their regulatory, um, uh, regulatory matters, but the attitude of uh, the current administration, which is perceived to be very antagonistic towards Chinese investment. Um, there was a, a an important CFIUS decision to block a semiconductor deal on the basis of that impacted national security. I don't know. There's a lot of semiconductor companies. No offense to anybody in the industry, but it just you know to the M and A community, people went, "Gee, that that's pretty significant." There was a CFIUS decision uh, earlier having to do with what was essentially a real estate transaction, but it was close to an army base up in uh, the Pacific Northwest. So there's a sense that some of this America first and America is going to be great again, all that stuff, is going to really impact um, foreign investment. Maybe not foreign investment generally, but certainly yeah. China. Within these wonderful observations is our collective memory, whether it's Pebble Beach Golf Club, remember the uproar when we were kids, over that, but I guess, am I right? Unical was sort of the seismic legal yes. transaction. Review that, please, Mr. Perfusek. Well, there's a the, the sort of a, a, a very large Chinese company named Sianuk, yeah. um, which is a, was at that time a state-owned enterprise, tried to acquire Unical, and it has that name, Unical. Mm. And so the perception was it was an American company, and it was blocked on CFIUS grounds. Like CFIUS is an interagency committee in Washington that looks at things that impact national security. 
And it was a pretty extraordinary transaction. This is uh, uh, because, in all honesty, it was an oil company. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, oil in general impacts everything, at least uh, at least today and back then. Um, but the irony was, even though it was named Unical, about 80% of its assets were in Asia. Mm. Um, so it really wasn't an American transaction except name only uh-huh. in, in a real sense. But that's sort of the point, is that politics can get in the way. Um, most times, the other regulatory agencies don't really look at that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about, you know, America this and America that in the, uh, in the election last last uh, term, and we're probably going to see it. And there was some, you know, big is bad st- uh, stuff. We haven't seen the answer yet. Um, I frankly think it'll go forward, but the time Warner deal is still pending. And of course, as a candidate, uh, President Trump basically said he'd block it. Uh, so we'll see. What have we learned of, uh, about the legacy of, of Brexit? We talked about the legacy of Brexit before it's officially happened here, but the, the legacy of that vote, uh, at least, and, and our notions of, of what's acceptable when it comes to, to competition and companies uh, in Europe. I sat down with uh, Margaret Vestier a few weeks back. She was in Washington, D.C., and obviously she's focusing on large part on, on U.S. tech companies. Is there a, a, a lessened appetite for, for deals uh, in Europe or in the U.K. at this point as a result of, of Brexit? Well, actually, um, the, the deal uh, of in the third quarter, uh, Europe was down more than any any other uh, market. If you look, if you think it's Asia and Americas and Europe, yeah. it was down almost 15 percent year on year in, uh, on a dollar basis. Um, again, the number of transactions wasn't down quite so much. Uh, that stays pretty constant. It, the, the value is driven by these big deals, things over $5 billion and that sort of thing. I, I think there's a sense that it's probably not going to make that big of a difference. Yeah, there will be a thousand bankers moved from London to Frankfurt or someplace like this by the, by a financial institution or two. But in terms of the overall activity, there's a sense, and maybe we're kidding ourselves, that maybe it was more sound and fury than reality. Um, and frankly, the EU is doing it in general pretty well economically and there's a, in terms of growth rate and all the rest of it so that – you're seeing a lot of activity, uh, again, thinking about activity, and it comes through. The rail uh, uh, announcement about a rail deal that was uh, last week, that's an, you know, evidence. There's plenty to do there. So um, I, I think people are pretty mm. optimistic. I think the concern uh, is, is Asia. I, I really do. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Your time is very valuable. Bob bills by the syllable, oh, in case you didn't know, uh, David. His time is extremely well, valuable. Work on surveillance here, Generous of you to be with us on surveillance on television and in radio, and particularly your perspective there of uh, your colleague in, in Atlanta. You're going to dash out the door. Good to see you, Bob. Take care. Try to move to things uh, more holiday and more timely mm. on the calendar, which is a finally 85 degree New York ended a few days ago. Joining us, uh, Stephen Barr uh, with PwC. Steve, let me ask with an open question. October 1, October 2, how does the holiday season shape up? Yeah, it's really looking like it's going to be a great holiday, both for retailers and consumers we're about to release our holiday outlook which yeah. tells us which tells us that the majority of consumers about 83% are going to spend more 
or the same as they did last year. And that's a 6%. In, we're expecting them to um, spend about 6% more than they did last year on on average, overall, about $1,189. Right. Sounds great. It's all going to go to Amazon, or does some of it actually migrate to the brick-and-mortar store with two down, empty, and vacant right now? Which way is that going to tilt? Yeah, uh, but we're, we're actually looking for it to be both um, a great holiday for in-store and online. No, no question that we're going to see the majority of the growth online. But the retailers have really come back with propositions that say they can keep the store relevant, especially in those areas with um, key demographics. And uh, so for the first time in a long time, we're looking for stores to have a very productive holiday season. How do they go about keeping those stores relevant? You write about, and I love this phrase, holiday felicity at stores. How does a, how does a traditional yeah. retailer get people to walk in? You went to my house. We've got felicity. <laughs> Yeah, felicity. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's look. The mall um, of the past is, is long dead, and what we've seen is a, a massive shift to uh, more entertainment and dining. And so, so the stores um, or the malls of the past that were really a destination primarily for apparel um, now are a destination for community with dining and entertainment options making up uh, nearly a quarter a quarter of of the overall property and we've also seen the great mall operators adapt and they're doing things to draw gen z and 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 young millennials with things like uber lounges and really just making it convenient for uh, that that next set of of shoppers in the, in the younger generations to care about the mall again Inter- interestingly enough um, we did a survey of, of young Gen Zs, and they told us their favorite place to shop is actually in-store versus online. You wrote about uh, the, 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 the move here for people to spend more this holiday season. I think up by 6%. That's your, your prediction. Is that going to be across the board? In other words, do you have all strata of consumers indicating that they're going to be paying more this holiday season? Yeah, well, the good news is that consumers over sixty uh, that earn over sixty thousand dollars a year are going are going to spend more this year, but those consumers um, that that earn less than sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars they're they're still struggling, and so the median income for for um, all households in the U.S. is around fifty nine thousand yeah. dollars, but it takes about sixty six thousand dollars for a family of four to cover their basic right. needs. So it's just it you know we just haven't seen the wage growth while it's better than it's been um in, in, you know in recent past it just isn't enough um to to push those no. folks over so we really do expect that the higher end consumer and we also expect um the 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 55 and older crowd to be the crowd that's driving the overall holiday. Okay, event. I'm glad that doesn't identify me. Um, yeah. You know, when, when I look at this, Steve, I, I think back eons, and it was a Sears Roebuck catalog that drove the dialogue. And then maybe with nostalgia and their bankruptcy, it was Toys R Us. Everybody wandered into Toys R Us for a frenzy of one-hour shopping or two-hour shopping in case of the Gura family. What's what's the emotion now behind all your economics? What's What's the emotion of the holiday moment? Yeah, well, I, I think that emotion is 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 driven by different things. I, I I think that when we see for for the younger generations, their emotion is influenced by social media, and that it, that social media is generally visual. So we see we see an interesting split in in the analysis where 
um, for the the older crowd their social media is driven by things like facebook and then for 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 the younger generations it's driven by things like instagram and youtube because they're they're far more visual so so that's the emotion that that we're seeing steve bar thank you very I, much I, I steve bar thank you pwc on retail david youtube will never replace the sears roebuck christmas <laughs> catalog <laughs> Page 184. Okay. Silver Tone Guitars. This is Bloomberg. David Gura and Tom Keen here in New York. Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, as a reporter in Washington, I relied often on the work of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, Howard Gleckman, Len Not Berman. That right. Donald Marin as well, who joins us on our phone lines. The Tax Policy Center worked quick after that framework came out last week, delivered an analysis just a couple of days later. The headline here, uh, the Tax Policy Center estimating that the proposal would reduce federal revenues by $2.4 trillion over the first 10 years and $3.2 trillion over the subsequent decade. Donald Marin, great to speak with you. And before we dig into that headline number, let me just ask you about the difficulty of doing this. We look at these nine pages and the unanswered questions therein. How how difficult is it to forecast the, the ramifications of something like this with that little information? Well, you know, it is difficult, and you'll, you'll see that our, our report is headlined a preliminary analysis. Uh, there are clearly important features that it doesn't uh, include because the administration and Congress haven't spelled them out in any detail. Uh, but we've, we've seen some of the ideas they've had in previous proposals, and they certainly provided a lot more detail uh, last week. And so this is, this is the team's best cut at what we know about the plan so far. Something we've heard over the week, and they provided detail in that, that framework, of course, and we've heard from many of the principals over the course of the week. And Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, reiterating uh, this is actually going to uh, reduce the, the deficit. Uh, square, square that with what you found uh, in your preliminary analysis thus far. Uh, so it's exceedingly difficult to square that. Uh, the, the, the pieces that we've seen articulated thus far, as you, as you said in the lead-in, would reduce revenues by more than $2 trillion over the next decade. Uh, that doesn't include our estimate of what the macroeconomic effect will be. That's in the works. That just takes longer, so you'll see that soon. Uh, but, you know, none of the models that the, the scoring shops here in Washington use would show you yeah. anywhere near, you know, $2 trillion plus coming mm-hmm. back from that. We should point out that all of our CBO directors of various flavors and persuasions are esteemed academics. Mr. Marin, no different with his mathematics at a school in Cambridge called Harvard. And then he went, he went down the river, up the river. I guess it's down the river, downstream, and did economics at MIT. And what that tells me, Don, is you know the glide path. If we start at $1.5 trillion, I've seen numbers as high as $2.4 trillion. First of all, what's the certitude that the number is bigger than $1.5 trillion? What's the likelihood is always the case that the cost of this thing is a lot bigger than anybody thinks? Well, you know, the likelihood is high of what we saw spelled out in detail, but, you know, but they did include some language in there about things they could do that might bring in more revenue, right? So they've talked about yeah. limiting interest deductibility for businesses. Uh, they talked about possibly, well, they focused on, you know, reducing the tax code, individual tax code to three brackets. They talked right. about the possibility of a fourth one on high-income folks. Mm-hmm. Obviously, depending on what numbers you choose for those, you could raise a significant amount of money doing those two things. Okay, well, that's the optimistic tack. Let me be more uh, realistic. Do you know of any proof in history that generating 
that there's a possibility of generating economic growth through substantial tax reduction. Now, oh, you were after theory, the growth piece, yes. Not, not uh, is there a theory, but is there a tangible evidence? You know, so there, there's definitely some evidence that links taxes to, to economic growth, but the magnitudes are just not on the level that, you know, that the more extreme advocates suggest. You know, mm-hmm. when, the, when the Congressional Budget Office or the Joint Committee on Taxation sit down and analyze, you know, look at all the evidence and then analyze tax proposals, for ones that are particularly pro-growth, they find that sometimes the growth will offset 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of the lost revenue. Uh, which is helpful and material and something Congress ought to know about, uh, but, you know, nowhere near paying for the vast majority of it. And let me ask you what this means for, for individuals. Something else that uh, the principal stressed over the weekend here is everyone's going to get a, a tax cut. Looking at your preliminary analysis again, that is the case. Uh, there are going to be tax cuts for, for most Americans, it seems. It just varies based on what income strata you're in. Yeah, so certainly not everybody, because there are going to be some people uh, who face tax cuts, uh, which, I mean, face, face tax increases, which is almost inevitable as you make changes to something this complicated. Uh, and it also depends when you look. Uh, so if you look in 2018, the first year all these changes would hypothetically be in effect, uh, about 78% of households uh, would see their taxes go down and about 12% up. Uh, but then if you go to the end of the decade, that's down to about 65% with a tax cut and about 25% with a tax increase, because of various features that bite more as you go through time. Is there a belief among the proponents of this tax legislation that it's what, to use a sophisticated word you learned in differential equations, that it's squishy? Or is it like the rest of us mere mortals think that actually bright guys like you and Orzag and Holtz Eakin and and the great Alice Rivlin and the rest of you, you can actually model and count what's going to happen? Which is it? Is this tangible and countable model building and analysis or is it squishy, 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 squishy? So it's both. Uh, oh, come you know, on. What is he, an economist? <laughs> no, yes. You know, I mean, the optimistic way we phrase that is that there's art and science. The, um, the things that are spelled out in detail, you can model pretty well, right? So we have, you know, a giant tax calculator, right, the policy wonks equivalent of TurboTax here. Um, and you can analyze that using recent data on what people's tax returns look like to get a good first cut of what things look like if you make these changes. Now it gets, you know, now you have to start making assumptions and estimates and predictions about how will people respond and how will the world change in the future. And that becomes, you know, less and less precise. Uh, but, you know, I, the modeling, I think, you know, provides incredibly useful yeah. data or information about kind of what you should expect the ballpark of effects to be. Did you in your initial modeling increase GDP estimates? No, not in the one that came out Friday. There wasn't time to run the, the macro fair, model. Fair, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah. that's something the team is, uh, is working on. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you till Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Don, let me ask you what we've learned about the business side of things. We focused on uh, personal tax cuts and personal tax reform here. When, when you look at what's been proposed when it comes to the corporate taxes, uh, what, what have you learned in terms of the ramifications of that? Well, so obviously a big cut in the corporate rate, right, from 35 down to 20. Uh, you know, some talk about rolling back tax breaks that uh, the corporations benefit from. Uh, the net effect of that would be a significant tax reduction on corporations, uh, with the wild card being what happens with interest deductibility, uh, which is just in there as sort of a placeholder at the moment, but we don't know whether they intend to do that aggressively or not aggressively. 
What's the, the greatest unanswered question you have at this point? Again, the, the, the whole thing is in co-it. We're going to see it move up to Capitol Hill. Some legislation is going to be built around this, this framework, presumably. But uh, as you were doing this analysis, what's the, the biggest unanswered question you had or the thing that made it most difficult to do the kind of full analysis you do at the Tax Policy Center? Uh, so, I mean, the biggest would be uh, what's going to happen with this hypothetical fourth bracket. Uh, is there one? Is there not there one? Um, and then the issues about pass-throughs, right? So there, there are many mm-hmm. businesses in America that don't pay taxes directly themselves, but instead pass their income and tax liability through to their, uh, through to their right. owners. Uh, the tax proposal uh, would reduce, would cap the tax rate those folks face at 25%. Uh, and there's a big unknown about exactly how you draw the line about who qualifies. Like, do all pastors qualify or only a limited set? Yeah. Uh, and there's a big uncertainty about how well you can prevent people from gaming the system. Because yeah. uh, once you have a rate differential like 25 for pass-throughs and 35 or more for high-income people, a lot of people are going to have an incentive to LLC themselves. And you don't want that to happen, but we don't know how good a job they're going to be able to do at stopping that. Donald Marin, thank you so much. Former acting director, CBO, and Urban Institute fellow as well. Uh, Dr. Marin, today... This was scheduled weeks ago. We must start with an opening comment on this tragedy from someone who knows a power of video. The video of the Jason Aldean concert is extraordinary. Ken Burns joins us. But before we speak of Vietnam, Ken, video can change our social dialogue. Will the video that we see of rapid firing into a large crowd, will it change the dialogue of gun legislation? Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. This is, of course, a very, very sad moment. Um, we t- like to say that a picture is worth a, a thousand words, and perhaps film and video amplify that. Unfortunately, I think today we've become kind of numb and inured uh, to this, and I don't think we ever move the dial either politically or mm-hmm. socially or legislatively, or more importantly, you know, emotionally or spiritually on these things, and we've become kind of um, numb. And I think that in some ways that the best line uh, or a line of 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 the inaugural speech in January, this American carnage must stop, was maybe used uh, prematurely. Ken Burns, to your acclaimed new video, I think everyone knows the success of it. I go to the imagery, the silver halide of Tri-X film that you captured brilliantly. Let me just start with what was it like to see the images that you saw in compiling this versus what Walter Cronkite told me as a kid? Yeah, you know, I grew up during that time, and Walter Cronkite, I thought, was speaking to me, not you, Tom. And so all of these things kind of entered into my consciousness and formed into my conventional, I now realize, wisdom, a very superficial conventional wisdom. And working the last 10 years, putting it together and trying to connect the dots between these images, these pictures, this extraordinary photography that did at a time change things, whether it's the assassination of the North Vietnamese spy lamb on the streets of Saigon, whether it's Kim Phuc, the little girl running naked, uh, you know, 30% of her body on fire from napalm, 
whether it's the, the, the friend of the shot student at Kent State over his body, all of the images of that war kind of compounded into sort of a mass jumble of impressions. And we spent 10 years trying to sort them out. What was true? What was accurate? What's the real story behind it? Is there a way to provide dimension? It, does contradiction have a role in it? Because more often than not, and especially in war, the opposite is also true. And so by triangulating the witnesses, North Vietnamese soldiers and civilians, Viet Cong guerrillas, South Vietnamese soldiers and civilians, as well as the whole spectrum of American beliefs, we tried to paint a portrait that might take yeah. those images that form in our consciousness and enlarge them and, yeah. and put them into a better context. Let me bring in my colleague, David Gura. David? Yeah, you had an incredible quantity of, of footage here, and I, I wonder if you can begin to describe what that process sure. was like, just, just making it through all of that, and it certainly brings to, to, to front of mind uh, how much of this was available contemporaneously. Yeah, so David, that's a really good question. You know, one of the benefits of working in public broadcasting and having enlightened, understanding underwriters like Bank of America, who said, you know, when we said this is going to be a controversial subject, they said, bring it on, bring it on. Better connected is their slogan, and, and like the idea of a variety of perspectives. The 10 years bought us a lot of time to dive deep into archives. Most people, filmmakers, are going to take what's on the top of the table. We could go and ask those archivists, could we get the outtakes? Could we get the original negative. Could we see this? We could also go to European outlets. We could go to Moscow. We could go to Beijing. We could go to Hanoi. We have some images in there that have never before uh, been seen, and we've been able to to show well, them to great effect, I think. You know, David Gura and Tom Keane here in New York, Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. A pleasure to be joined by Ken Burns, uh, the filmmaker Ken Burns, who, uh, with Lynn Novick, uh, has created Vietnam, an 18-hour-long documentary in 10 parts on PBS focused on that uh, conflict. And, uh, Ken, I wanted to ask you just how you you distill all of this to find the the principles on whom you focus. Uh, I was particularly moved by by, uh, Mogi Crocker, Denton Crocker of Saratoga Springs, and you talk with uh, his mother, Jean Marie. Uh, with uh, with his sister as well, Carol Crocker. How do you find someone like that? How do you find a, a story uh, that has so many layers and ends up being uh, as moving as that one is? Well, uh, you know, the key word, David, thank you, is is distill. I think you hit it on the head. Most people assume that you build a film, and you do, that it's additive, but it's mostly subtractive. So we will collect thousands of hours of footage, tens of thousands of still photographs, hundreds of hours of testimony, um, transcripts of, of interviews, et cetera, et cetera. So we just cast our net as far and wide as we can, and in the course of it, you read a, an unpublished memoir of, uh, of a Gold Star mother. It's very moving and wondered whether she would be willing to share on camera the worst experience of her life and if her daughter might also be willing to do that. They they were, of course, reluctantly with great reticence and 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 generosity and gave a great gift to all of us, not just to us as filmmakers, but uh, us as a country. Uh, because the half-life of grief is endless, and when you see somebody who has negotiated it, however, incompletely, it can be a big help. Uh, there's a moment at the end of our section on the wall where John Musgrave, one of our interviews, a Marine who's gone through unbelievable transformations uh, in the course of the film, says when he got to the wall that this is going to save lives. Uh, it would be very presumptuous to put our work of art on the same level as Maya Lin's extraordinary thing, but I hope that in some ways people will begin to talk with each other to themselves about what took place. And I think Jean Marie Crocker and Carol Crocker have done us all an enormous service by sharing with you us the painful uh, details of the loss of their son and brother, Mogi.
What's the, the, the negotiation like, the conversation like with uh, somebody who is a parent who's lost a child or uh, someone who uh, went right up to nearly committing a suicide? These are incredibly emotional moments you capture. How do, how do you get people to, to consent to, to go down that path again, to, to re-engage with, uh, with those? Well, you know, I'm not sure that they, we, we even know or they even know what kind of path we're going to go down. For us, we have to be honorable. There's no kind of gotcha journalism here. There's no aha. It's looking for telltale signs and, and maybe listening that much harder and, and pursuing something that caused a twitch in the cheek and, and doing it you know, gently, uh, in a way that's not going to upset their own fragile, fragile, you know, infrastructure. That's a really, really important thing that we have to learn is, is to listen and to be prepared to hear these things uh, from them and, and not yeah. just go after a list of questions. Ken, to, to parallel this with your magnificent the Civil War, which some of us are embarrassed to say we've seen five times, <laughs> the, ba- the Battle of Quezon was, to go back to Mr. Cronkite, something daily that we heard about. I and mean, this is yeah. a six-month battle, truly a battle, almost in a John Keegan sense. What did you learn in piecing together Docto and Quezon? What was the thing that came away that was totally removed? We didn't know about it except the nightly news. And yet here was something out of another time, a John Keegan kind of another war. Yes, exactly. And so I think that, you know, and, and it has, uh, it harkens back to the Alamo. It harkens yeah. back to other things. There's a moment when John Musgrave, the Marine I was talking about, in his experience up in I-Corps where, where Quezon is, he was in a different place called Contien. He said, you know, war is a real estate business, but it wasn't here. You don't like to be wounded taking the same mountain again. And I think that in some ways with regard to Quezon, we could grasp it because here we were in a place, a fort. It was like the Indian wars or the Alamo, and we're being attacked. So Americans could sort of wrap themselves around the Keegan-esque aspects of that and, and Docto. For most of the action of the Vietnam War, though, it's something else. It's sending men a patrol sometimes, as little as a patrol, out to be ambushed, to draw fire, to be bait, as they themselves, the Army guys and the Marines, said it. And so these are harder battles to understand. And when you take a mountain, a hamburger hill, and backwards uh, in time, uh, at great cost, and then abandon it right away, you begin to see the effect that it has, not just on an American public, but on the morale of the soldiers who are being asked to take or retake or, or take yet again a hill that has no strategic place. It's just where the enemy is. The enemy also understands this, and so they are willing. They've, they've made a huge commitment of lives. They, we will not count the cost, their leader lays one said, which is a terrifying thing, meaning they will send, you know, men, thousands of men to their deaths in order to lure Americans into these kind of um, mm-hmm. battles in which they then blend back into the into Cambodia or something like this. So John uh, George Marshall said uh, at the end of World War II that a democracy could be in a war for 10 years and then the people would get really unhappy about it. So it may be speaking a kind of truth from the ancient voices of our, our past generals uh, to what happened in Vietnam. 
Ken, in the time we have left here, let me ask you about uh, how the way that you make these films uh, has changed. Uh, my wife and I sat down and watched this contiguously night after night after night, and, and we came to the realization just because of talking to friends that some had binge-watched or watched it, you know, in, in large chunks. Uh, others were going to wait and watch it later on. Uh, it's not a moment in the way that it was uh, with the Civil War. Tom referenced that just a, a moment ago. How does that change the way that you, you pursue making a film, the way that we uh, watch movies, the way that we watch documentaries and television you know, programs today? You know, Dave, that's a great question again. I mean, we don't change the way we do it. We want to still keep it very process-oriented. We wish we were still shooting film where we could hold the damn things in our hand instead of all of us having a mouse and a keyboard and all of that sort of stuff. But we do have to understand. I always watch it every time it's broadcast. I am there in my living room uh, alone uh, you know, or with loved ones watching the film that I've made and I've seen a hundred times, but I want to watch it when everyone else is. But you have to understand in this new age, and yeah. everybody got it. Our underwriters, Bank of America, the, the Better Angels Society, which is a group of people across the political spectrum, of people of means who have contributed to this film, which was very heartening that we could have that kind of support. Uh, you know, the various foundations, the government granting agencies all understood we have a new paradigm. So you do have that broadcast, but it is available for streaming. The DVDs are released two days after the series starts broadcasting. I'm meeting that, friends you know, who finished it last night, Tom. Bur- you know, who says, Burns is selling this thing. This is like the Ken Burns we know and love. He's, he's <laughs> well, selling the well, documentary right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, but so people are ca- and right now it's going to be launched uh, tomorrow night as a weekly series on on PBS. It's going to take us almost to Christmas time, and um, that's the new paradigm. You got to yeah. have it on every single platform in every way, but it doesn't alter fundamentally yeah. how you make the film. Ken Burns, I downloaded it off Amazon Video. If that helps there your you uh, data points, <laughs> you uh, as you can, Ken Burns, congratulations and thank you uh, so much. It is simply the Vietnam War. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.